Hello and welcome to Wellbeing. I'm Dr. Virginia Reid. This morning on Wellbeing, we're going to be discussing mind-body medicine, the connection between the mind and the body and the scientific evidence, therefore, and what we can do about it with Dr. Craig Hassett. Dr. Craig Hassett is a general practitioner who's long been interested in stress management and the uh, mind-body connection. He's actually a lecturer now, a senior lecturer at Monash University Department of General Practice in Mind-Body Medicine. Welcome, Dr. Hassett. Hello, Virginia. How did you first get interested in this area? Uh, Well, I always had an intuitive interest uh, just from my own experience, even before I started medicine just how important the mind uh, is in in my own well-being. Mm. And when I got into medicine, I was sort of interested to hear and learn more about this when we're meant to be learning about health, but uh, a lot of my medical education uh, didn't really focus on health. It mostly focused on illness. uh, Likewise. (laughs) Sort of like the other side of the coin didn't exist. Yeah. And... um, so it was sort of pretty much a dormant uh, interest. I, I did dabble a little bit in meditation when I was in medical school, which I found helped me enormously in um, in just staying focused and uh, dealing with the pressures and stresses that were a part of life at that stage. Mm. But uh, when I got into my career and a few years out, sort of thinking, well, what direction am I going to head in? I can remember have a, having a strong feeling that uh, there are a lot of things that were not included in my medical education that seemed pretty relevant to the sort of clinical work I was doing in um, both in the hospitals and then later in general practice. And uh, I can remember having a thought that uh, somebody should do something about that. <laughs> and uh, and I uh, saw the, uh, the position at uh, Monash University in the Department of General Practice and uh, something said, well, go and do something about it and see what sort of contribution you can make. And so that was uh, applied there in 1988 and have been working there since 1989 and over that time certainly working in a very supportive and open-minded environment in the department that I I have been. It's sort of given the opportunity to open up the area and uh, to expand to develop courses and programs and to um, progressively uh, introduce some of these important elements into the medical course. Did you initially look for the scientific evidence for the ability to make that connection and it be a real phenomena that could be worked on to advantage in terms of helping people with, well, maintaining wellness certainly, but helping them with illness as well? Yeah, well, I mean, I initially went there with a sort of an intuitive kind of philosophical kind of uh, view and I can remember when, you know, as a sort of a junior lecturer in the department and presenting to the people in the department, uh, you know, sort of speaking nice sort of um, stuff, but it wasn't sort of really grounded and uh, mm. it didn't, uh, I didn't have a lot of wisdom at the time, but I had, had enough wisdom to sort of sit down and shut up until uh, I could sort of communicate it in a different way. Right. It really became apparent to me um, uh, how important it was to actually say, well, look, it's not just how you feel about it or your own experience uh, or something intuitive, you really need to go to what the science has to Mm. say. Mm. And so I started looking at the evidence and um, there was another person in the department at the time who was interested in this area as well. So we started to look at what sort of science and evidence was around and there was a, a surprising amount that was around there. So... That was a really important um, uh, foundation, firm foundation to start um, from. And so I think that once sort of moving from there and saying, well, 
as objectively as you can, well, this is where the evidence is, this is what it shows, these are the clinical effects, the biological effects, and so on. And then from there, it was much easier to say, all right, well, you know, um, would you be interested to now put some of this into a practical context and, and move on to practice some, uh, uh, some of the kinds of techniques that might be uh, helpful? And then the conversation is not just based on science, it's then also based on practical experience, which is a much more useful combination. Yes, precisely. And that is what you are doing at the moment in both your uh, role as a senior um, lecturer and in your general practice? Well, yes, and in my clinical work, uh, it's nearly all involved with um, stress management, um, particularly mindfulness-based stress management, uh, the, the clinical applications of uh, mindfulness and meditation exercises, but also um, uh, have quite a lot of work involved with um, uh, cancer support programs so at the Gawler Foundation, um, mm-hmm. teaching the, the mind-body, which in the cancer area we call psycho-oncology, uh, and also programs at the Petraea King Quest for Life Centre and and then for a number of community groups as well because like with, um, say, speaking this uh, weekend at uh, a, a New South Wales Cancer Council uh, event for uh, yeah, it's a cancer support program event um, because the, uh, so many patients are interested to know what are the things that we can do for ourselves, what can we combine with our medical treatments that might improve outcomes or coping. So there's a lot of um, uh, interest in that area, but mostly I'm, I'm focusing in my clinical work on the stress management mind-body components as an adjunct to what uh, people are doing in terms of their medical treatments. Mm. And how do these medical students receive the teaching that mind-body connection is scientifically proven and is a helpful adjunct to their therapeutic regime? I think the, the vast majority um, seem to receive it pretty well. Yeah. Uh, I think that there's, and that's, uh, I think it's become, certainly at Monash, much more of a part of the, the culture over the time. Mm. Uh, there are some students who certainly come in with a little bit of a cynical attitude, thinking that uh, perhaps anything that's not um, dissecting a cadaver is, uh, is not really serious medical education. And uh, But um, as the students soon find in the lectures that I, I give them in the program, that uh, everything is uh, solidly referenced on peer-reviewed medical literature and um, if they think it's uh, just a soft, wishy-washy sort of subject, I think they quickly find that uh, uh, there's a lot of solid science they need to know. There are a lot of clinical skills they need to know about. So I don't like them uh, sort of uh, getting up from the lecture and thinking, well, that was all a, a little bit wishy-washy. A bit fluffy, yeah. <laughs> mm. So, uh, you know, at the same time, you can't lose the if you like, the intuitive, yes. uh, practical, experiential part yes. of it. But in that kind of environment, it's got to be grounded on science as well. Yes, certainly. And I suppose some people are attracted to certain branches of medicine, some to others. So it depends yeah. on the student, doesn't it? Yeah, you're not going to get 100% of students no. thinking that this is... Uh, Nor in anatomy or physiology or surgery or... Yeah, yeah but, but absolutely. I mean, mind you, there's so much overlap between yeah. these disciplines. Yes, of course, and that's the one thing I don't think that is appreciated, which is the biological effect. Mm. You're listening to Wellbeing. I'm discussing the mind-body connection and its effect on our health with Dr Craig Hassett of the General Practice Department of Monash University. So what is some of the scientific evidence, Craig, for the mind-body connection and how it affects us biologically? Well, one of the first sort of areas people got interested in was the placebo response. Mm Mm-hmm that if you take a sugar pill that you think is something else, 
um, that it'll actually have clinical effects. And it's gone a little bit further from just noticing that um, people can get a clinical effect from taking a, a, an inert substance to now looking at what actually goes on in the brain. Mm-hmm. So if you take, for example, a sugar pill that you think is a painkiller, about 80% of people will get some effect on their pain. Mm-hmm. But if you actually do a brain scan on their brain, virtually the same um, chemical and electrical processes are happening or various parts of the brain are being electrically activated in response to the placebo in the same way as that uh, if you actually took the painkiller. So the, the biology in the brain, if you like, is virtually mm. identical um, mm. and not based so much on the substance but on the person's belief. But there's that whole area with the placebo response, how powerful the mind is. But mind-body is a lot more um, than that. A lot of attention has um, really gone on what we call the stress response or the fight or flight response. And um, the thing is that if you if you see a, a tiger or uh, some sort of threat, and we don't see tigers much in day-to-day life these days, but, you know, that's... A sort you of certainly a, see a lot of threats, though, Craig. <laughs> that's right. And so if you see something that you perceive as a threat, mm-hmm. then your physiology will activate and you can measure hundreds, in fact thousands, of chemical changes that occur in response mm-hmm. to that. And all of that, from your blood becoming thick and sticky and ready to clock in case your you know, tiger takes a bite out of you, inflammatory chemicals to start the healing process going, um, it includes your heart rate, your blood pressure going up, it's like a turbocharge on your cardiovascular system, your respiration going up to get the oxygen to burn the fuel. You've got fuel like in the, in the form of sugars and fats being mobilized into your bloodstream. Your immune system activates. All of these are appropriate and adaptive changes to a threatening situation. But the, where the mind-body connection comes in is that it's not so much the event that's there, but it's the way that we see it, it's mm. the way we perceive it. Mm that determines whether or not the response is activated. And unfortunately, for about every one time that we do need to activate it, like you've got to jump out of the way of a truck that uh, comes from nowhere and nearly hits you, um, for about every one time we, we do need it, there are about 999 times that we don't need it. That is, if you really sat down and had a cool, calm, rational look at the so-called stressor, mm. really not necessarily what we make it out to be. Mm. You know, so there's so Perception much... is the important key piece. That's right. Mm. Uh, an ancient Greek uh, Epictetus once said, uh, man is not disturbed by events, but by the view he takes of them. Obviously, yes. And, um, and so many of the stressors go on in our own imagination that we're taking to be real. Mm. And mm. Uh, so, like, you know, weeks before an event happens or days before you actually have to go to the dentist, you can be experiencing stress. Mm not based on what's actually happening in the here and the now, but based on what your mind's imagining and projecting about the future, Mm -hmm. or Mm -hmm. perhaps what your mind's going over in the past. You Mm -hmm. had an argument with somebody, but you go over it a hundred times in Mm -hmm. your own mind, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and you experience the stress a hundred times instead of the ones that had actually happened. Mm -hmm. So these are are times when we're activating this response. It all takes place through a a particular part of the nervous system we call the sympathetic nervous system, Mm -hmm. but it's overreacting. And over the time, this places a, a big physiological wear and tear on our system mm-hmm. that really starts it to, if you like, wear out the parts a lot faster. Mm-hmm. And the name that's given to that is allostatic load. Yeah. And uh, so the thing is that all of this inappropriate activation can be 
deactivate it again, but that mm. requires us to be more aware, mm-hmm. a little bit more focused in the present moment, mm-hmm. a little bit more rational. Mm. But if we practice that and say, like with, um, uh, say, mindfulness techniques over a long period of time, we know that we reverse these effects. But these effects, um, allostatic load, um, can also affect the brain and wear out the brain cells a lot faster. Mm. And we now know that a lot of these effects on the brain is aging related degeneration of the brain can mm. be significantly slowed and quite possibly reversed in some parts of the brain or mm. at least to some extent. So some of the brain sciences are really getting very interesting in this field. And you see there's also the all of the areas of how our emotions affect our health. Mm-hmm. So if we have uh, chronic anxiety or or chronic depression, mm-hmm. um, it significantly can increase our risk of getting, say, heart disease. Yes. Now, the, all of those kinds of figures, and I could quote figures and statistics, they can sometimes be a bit scary. Yeah. What we need to bear in mind is that every time we make an investment of, in our positive mental health or yeah, coping, yeah, yeah. even though we might not think that we're getting very far with it, but every time we take a step in that mm-hmm. direction, we are reducing risk mm. because we know that these effects are reversible. Mm. And even for a person who has heart disease, mm-hmm. If they learn to cope with their stress and improve mm, their mental mm, health, mm. we know that they um, significantly reduce the chances of that heart disease recurring or progressing or mm. progressing more quickly. Yeah, this is the message I think needs to get out because I practice complementary therapies and gee, there's an awful lot of pill bottles, you know, there's an awful lot of sort of herbs, minerals, etc. that are touted to be wonderful for people with illness and yet this this particular message doesn't seem at least not until now, to be getting across. Mm. That the scientific evidence shows us that if you do start to do to reverse those sort of traits, and I think a lot of people think they perhaps can't because mm-hmm. it's in their personality or their genes and they just can't alter it. Yeah. But the scientific evidence on mindfulness meditation, for example, not that you have to practice simply it or, or any particular modality, but there is good scientific evidence, isn't there, that you can reverse those trends. Yes, that's right, and that's that's. Um, there was just a few weeks ago um, uh, a conference. It's an annual conference, um, completely directed <clears throat> to mindfulness-based therapies. Um, and uh, at Harvard University, a few weeks ago, had a half-day conference um, dedicated to mindfulness uh, within medical education. Mm. And uh, so, these things are starting to get very um, uh, interesting, and, and people are obviously recognizing it's important clinical value mm-hmm. but um advertising uh, is not there <laughs> yeah and the research mm. for example on depression so there's a, been a series of studies looking at people with severe relapsing depression mm. Mm. Uh, which you know medically um is very difficult yes. to, uh, to treat and the figures sort of represent that a person if uh, if they've had a number of episodes of depression over the next two years on average, that'd be um, about 78% would expect to have another relapse at some stage or other. Mm-hmm. That's even with medical treatment. Now, people who are taught mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, which is, you know, incorporating some of the things I was mentioning before, mm-hmm. and practice that over a period of time, more than half their chance of having another relapse from their depression. Mm-hmm. So there is much more in our own hands, our mm-hmm. own abilities. Mm. We often, uh, I mean, that's far better than a lot of your antidepressants, isn't it? Oh, far, 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 better. far better, and it's and it's self done. Therefore, there's no side effects. Yeah, and I'm not mm. going to give a, a no. message today that uh, mm. no. throw away modern medicine. No, no, no. 
but uh, if we're just thinking that it's going to be the medicine doing it for us, we may be missing the main part of it and that we can incorporate these therapies. If we've got chronic pain, for example, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You, know, you can do what you can medically, mm. to sort it out, sort mm-hmm. out what the problem is, treat it. Mm-hmm. But uh, there's a lot of things that we can do for ourselves mm. as adjuncts to the therapy. Mm. Change the quality of life in a very big way and change the outcomes of the illness. Yes, and alter ourselves biologically. Mm, that's mm. right. Mm. Yes, amazing thing, shifting perception. <laughs> yes, and the thing is that we don't often realise that we're doing it. And uh, as you said before... Mm. Well, that's we, mindfulness, isn't it? Knowing when you are doing it. Yes, that's right. Mm. And, um, mm. and it's and changing that mindset that I presume is what you actually teach. Yeah, mm. and a little bit of, as you said before, that we think, oh, we can't change mm. it. Sometimes mm. when we reinforce a behaviour, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. you know, like when you get a car and you drive mm. it across the grass, mm. and if you keep driving it across the grass, pretty soon you've got a couple of ruts in the ground, mm. and mm. it starts to get difficult to actually turn the wheels out of the ruts. Well, that's like, a beautiful analogy, yes. Yeah, and, and a lot of our behaviours and habitual mm-hmm ways of dealing with things and our conditioning is a little bit like that. We've reinforced mm. them so often mm-hmm. um, that it's hard to get out of that kind of rut. Out of the rut, but, what happens, but it can be done. That's right. So mm. what's initially a little bit difficult to practice a new behaviour, to practice a new way of, of being aware and so on, uh, it's a little bit like it, it's hard to get out of the ruts. But uh, once you consistently reinforce that over a period of time, those old ruts actually fill in Mm. and uh, a new behavior becomes much easier Mm. and Mm. uh, this is this whole area we're um, now finding is uh, well there's a a term called neuroplasticity Mm -hmm. and what that means is that your brain will literally wire itself according to how it's being used Mm -hmm. but that wiring is not fixed when we're young we now know that um, well, we used to think that it was, but we now know that if you practice something different, if you practice being more mindful, if you practice dealing with anger in a more constructive way, mm. we now know that the brain will literally rewire itself for those new behaviours, mm. and the old wiring will actually be taken up, mm. and mm. Um, or you know, significantly um, sort of downregulated in a way. Mm. So you can remodel your brain. That's or right. your, your connections. You're listening to Wellbeing. I'm discussing the mind-body connection and its effect on our health with Dr. Craig Hassett of Monash University. So, Craig, how can people access this sort of help? Well, there are an increasing number of doctors who are um, being trained in this, uh, this sort of area. Uh-huh. So, um, you know, general practitioners or hospital-based programs that are... Um, that are starting to introduce, say, mindfulness-based therapies mm-hmm. or um, teaching something on mind-body. Uh, a lot of psychologists are interested in this sort of area as well and they're getting training. So there's some important outlets. There are mm. community courses and programs. And how would you choose which one you thought was going to be useful? Well, yeah, I mean, that's, that's a good question. Mm. But, I mean, some people want individual um, therapy. I often find that classes, working in a group, mm-hmm. learning um, a, a practice is uh, very uh, helpful because you've got the shared motivation and insights of a whole lot of people, not just yourself, mm. but groups don't suit, uh, suit everybody. Mm. I think uh, it also needs to be congruent with you culturally. So you can learn uh, mindfulness-based strategies and mm-hmm. the completely sort of clinical um, sort of... Um, medical, yes. secular kind of setting, mm-hmm. say at mm-hmm. a hospital or mm-hmm. in, a, in a clinic, um, 
or with a cancer support program or something mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. But uh, you could equally learn a lot of these practices in a, a more spiritual environment. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. a, um, you know, uh, so it could be a church or it could be at um, okay. um, uh, the Buddhist organization. So and what is mindfulness? Well, mindfulness is really about uh, paying attention. It's about awareness. It's mm -hmm. about being... Of what? Well, very much of the present moment. Mm -hmm. uh, is it what you're in, what is in your mind? Is it what you are thinking? How you are feeling? Is that what mindfulness is? Yes, awareness includes uh, awareness of our thoughts and our reactions, awareness of what's happening in the body, awareness of what's happening in the present moment around us. One of the things that we quickly notice when we start practicing uh, mindfulness is that we realize how much of the time the mind is going off into its own world of rumination about the future or the past, of projecting dramas that hadn't even happened. So we quickly realize that our minds are pretty distractible, scatty sort of thing, and it's creating a lot of dramas that haven't even happened. As uh, Mark Twain said, I've had a lot of catastrophes in my life. Some of them actually happened. And uh, So mindfulness pretty quickly teaches us how scatty our mind is, but it also teaches us the way through awareness of the body, through being grounded in the present moment, to bring our attention back to the here and the now. Because dealing with reality is a lot easier than dealing with our imaginations. And we, over time, sort of in a way, lose the ability to distinguish between imagination and reality. Mm. And so uh, in mindfulness exercises, it'll be... Like the, if you like, the cornerstone is will be sitting in a chair or sometimes lying um, flat on the floor, but uh, will be practicing awareness of the body, is the because the body's always in the present moment, so it's a great contact point to bring our attention back into the present moment. So we use our senses, literally come to our senses by feeling the body, feeling the breath. You can also use other senses like hearing the sounds, even if you're tasting food, for example. You know, taste, really engaging with that sense, again, will just bring your attention into the present moment. So it's a way of consistently and patiently bringing the attention back. But in the process, as I said before, all sorts of thoughts and worries and anxieties and memories and things are going through the mind. And we may notice in our experience if we try and fight with those thoughts or feelings or try not to have an anxious thought or a feeling, we actually amplify um, the effect of those thoughts and feelings. Mm -hmm. A person has a history of depression and all of a sudden has a depressive thought or feeling, mm -hmm. gets so reactive to that, not wanting to have it, getting mm -hmm. an anticipating mm -hmm. whether it's going to get worse, am mm -hmm. I going to go down again, mm -hmm. um, will actually amplify the impact of that thought mm -hmm. or the feeling. So the person who learns to be more mindful acknowledges the fact that these thoughts and feelings come in but starts to cultivate an attitude of acceptance as they notice them. They accept the fact that they're there. There's sort of, if you like, less reactivity to them. But the person learns to very gently acknowledge them, but very gently bring the attention back to the present moment. But then the thought and the feeling comes in again. Yes, but, you know, what about me? That's right. We notice it again, accept it again, but very gently bring our attention back to the present moment. Now, that's initially not very easy, but over days mm. and weeks... So and how long do you practice each day? Well, people are mostly practicing... Um, you can often just starting off with, say, five minutes twice a day mm -hmm. in the chair mm -hmm. um, and then building up to, say, 10, 15 or even 20. So mm. 
So people who are practicing in the longer term and who have gotten consistent with the practice will often practice for, say, about 20 minutes twice a day. Right. But the really important thing is to recognize that what a person's practicing in the chair is a skill for life so that when yeah. you get out of the chair, right. you're practicing being mindful in your day-to-day life. So is that how you are now? Uh, look, I can assure you I'm a work in progress. <laughs> I think Aren't I'm, we all? Yes, yes. So, um, Hopefully, otherwise you're dead. Uh, yeah, well... According I mean, to me. <laughs> yes, I mean, the things that sort of initially intuitively and then in a more formal sort of sense, philosophically and then scientifically, yes. that I started to get interest in, I found gave me an enormous amount of help. Mm. But... Um, I, you know, my experience is that this is very much an ongoing process. Mm-hmm, and, uh, there's mm-hmm. plenty of room for improvement, but mm. that sort of skill and that ability to mm. be less reactive, less mm. caught up in the thoughts and the feelings that mm-hmm, mm-hmm. we don't necessarily always want to experience is, a, is like a, uh, an ability that grows over time. Mm. So what initially seems very difficult, and the person needs a certain amount of faith just to get started with it, yes. pretty soon becomes an ability that a uh, person realizes that they uh, they always had, but they mm. never really developed. Mm, mm, yeah, and I think that's the piece, isn't it? Really, we're all humans. We have the ability. We all have a consciousness. We all have an ability, therefore, to uh, not master it, but to use it mm. to allow us self control and self determinism. Yeah, and, and as opposed to relying on a pill or a doctor or a or a somebody else. Yeah, and a really important issue with control is that, uh, and that mindfulness teaches us this, that you can't necessarily control the fact of having a thought or a mm. feeling mm. or mm. a sensation in your body that if mm. it's there, it's there. Mm. So we mm. can't necessarily control the fact that a, a, a worrying thought's going to come into our mind. Mm. But the person who learns to, uh, if you like, a more mindful form of control um, learns not to be controlled by those thoughts. Yes. So a person who's mind... I have a thought, I am not the thought, that one. Yeah. Like yeah. you do with pain. Mm. Yeah. That's mm. right, there's pain, if there's pain, there, there's an anxious thought, well, there's an anxious thought, but the person, rather than trying to control it and suppress it and fight with the thought, recognises, well, if there's anger, um, yeah, I acknowledge the fact that there's anger, um, but they don't have to be controlled by it. If I could use perhaps an analogy... Mm like trains of thought are coming in all the time, um, like into a busy train station. Yes. Now, you can't control the fact necessarily of whether those trains come in or not, but you can control um, your choice of whether or not you want to get on the train. Mm. But letting mm. the thought or the feeling come in, mm-hmm. letting it flow through, letting it go past, mm. without necessarily engaging with it, if you like, non-attachment to it. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a skill we practice over time, but pretty soon we realise that well, we can let the trains of thought come and go. And if it's a train that's going somewhere useful, well, we get on it. And about mm. every 10 or 15 years, we mm. do have a useful thought. So it's almost like ignoring <laughs> certain thoughts and, and paying a lot of attention to others. Yeah, yeah, mm. we, we learn to direct our attention mm. where it might be useful. Mm. In so in other words, don't say it doesn't exist, but just ignore it. Yeah. Yeah, sounds wonderful. Thank you very much for a very interesting discussion and a very practical discussion, I hope. And in general, giving hope to people to be able to alleviate their own suffering. <laughs> yes, I think that uh, really the best doctor is within. Uh, yes. That the, the best um, healthcare advice we can get from... Uh, from a bit of guidance. Mm. Yeah, that's, that sounds really like a good recipe to me. <laughs> Thank you very much for your time and your uh, knowledge, vast knowledge. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. 
You've been listening to Wellbeing with Dr. Virginia Reid and I've been discussing mind-body medicine with Dr. Craig Hassard of the General Practice Department of Monash University. We'd like to thank you all for listening. I'd like to thank my production staff and we'd like to wish you well.